Hey guys, we wanted to take a moment to thank you for tuning in. Check back weekly to stay up to date with what God is doing here in the life of our church. To learn more information, you can find us online at sturkey.church. Our prayer here at the church at Sturkey Hills is that you are moved by this message. Guys, thanks for tuning in and have a blessed week. Amen. Hey, worship team, thank you so much for today. It was beautiful. Amen. And maybe you come weekly and you, you haven't gotten to the place where you engage in worship of Jesus. And I just want to invite you to just kind of let that thing go. Just get to a place, at least in this moment, if not every day of your life, where you just kind of let go and say, wow, Jesus Thank you for choosing to love something like me so much that you would die in my place and adopt me into your forever kingdom. And when you get to that place, man, you want to worship and you don't have to try. You just show up and worship happens and you're like, oh, here it is again. And that's what it should look like on Sunday morning. And I'm telling you, worship team, thank you for leading us. That was amazingly sweet. Well, if you got your Bibles, I want you to open them or your device to John chapter 6. That's where we're going to be today as we continue uh, at, uh, looking at this gospel according to John, one of Jesus's, if not Jesus's very best friend. Uh, John referred to himself as the disciple Jesus loved, and we've talked about that. That wasn't a prideful statement. That was an, an, an awareness statement that says, hey... <laughs> I don't know about y'all, but Jesus loves me most. And we should be that way about Jesus. We should feel cherished in the eyes of God. Because if there were no others, he would die for you. And that would make you the one that Jesus loved the most. So you can put your name in that statement. Now, this story, the narrative we're going to look at today is, uh, is an amazing story. And, and, and virtually all of us have heard the story. If, we've, if we were raised in church, we've seen flannel graph. We've colored pictures. We've learned it in Bible school. We've learned it in Sunday school. We've heard preachers preach on it. It is the, uh, one of the most popular stories in all of the Gospels. One reason it's most popular is because it's one of only two of the miracles of Jesus that are actually recorded in all four Gospels. That makes it significant. The resurrection is the other one, and this story today is uh, in all four Gospels. Now, in the Gospels, the first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are what they're called as, uh, called as synoptic Gospels, meaning they're very similar. They, they track along the same line. John came along, man, and he wrote a different gospel. Now, it's in alignment. It never negates or stands against the synoptic gospels, but it's different. He has accounts in here that none of, nobody else talks about. And yet, here is this story today that all of the gospels include, and I believe it's because primarily two reasons. This is the largest crowd that Jesus will ever speak into. Not only that, but by the end of chapter 6, they're all gone. And he's back to his basic uh, disciples that he began with. Because he calls them out from being people who just pursue Jesus to, for what he can do for them. They just want to see the miracle man do his cool stuff. He calls them out and invites them into a personal relationship with God through him. And people walk away. And so it's, it's an incredible chapter that we'll be looking at. Now, we're just going to cover the first several verses today because there's a lot in this 
chapter. Also, the reason this is a great chapter and people know this story is because we can identify with this story. This story is about a provision that needs to be, a need that needs to be met and a provision that doesn't seem to exist. And all of us, maybe not now, but in the past, or in the future, we've had a need in our life that when we look at, at the resources to accomplish fulfilling that need, it's just not there. And so we question, man, how is this going to happen? Now watch this. I want you to know this is kind of universal. If you've ever had a need in your life and you wondered how it was going to be fulfilled, you just wondered, raise your hand. You see there? We're in, you're in common company. We all have been there, and if you haven't... <laughs> That means you got one, to, one in the chamber headed in your direction. Okay, so I want this message to encourage you today. Now, we'll be looking at John chapter 6. We'll refer back to a little bit of Luke, a little bit of Mark, and a little bit of Matthew to kind of fill in the blanks in this story. Now, I want to let you know how this story, how this story has gotten to where it is. So, since we left off in chapter 5, several months have now passed until John picks up the narrative again. When you read the other Gospels, he fill, they fill in the blanks. So John has, uh, picks up uh, several months later. Now what has been happening in those months? Jesus has sent his disciples out. He told them, he said, listen, I want you now to go out and do ministry. And while you're there, I want you to perform miracles. And so the disciples go out and they're sharing the story of Jesus and they're performing miracles. It, they are. Jesus is not even with them. They're in pairs of two out doing ministry. Now they've all come back together with Jesus. And they're telling him all the great things they saw. They're telling uh, Jesus the stories. Man, we've been on the mission field. And, and if you, when you go on the mission field, I'll say when. I want everybody to be on the mission field at some point. When you go on the mission field, you get stories, right? And when you come back, you can't shut up. And people are like, would you stop talking about your mission trip? And the answer is, no, we will not Okay, because you can't help it. And that's what these guys are doing. They're coming back to Jesus. Let me tell you what happened, Jesus. And, and, and you know how when guys get together, everybody's got to trump the other one's story. Ben, you know how that is. Somebody tells a story, and you're in a circle. And, 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 and the next guy's just waiting for you to take a breath so you can jump in with a better story. And I believe that's what it looked like. Oh, really? Let me tell you what happened over here. You know, so they're just excited about what, uh, what God has done in their life, in their ministry. Now, that's what's going on that leads us to chapter 6 in John, beginning in verse 1. It says, after this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, also called the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they were observing miraculous signs he was performing on the sick. Now, if you look over in Mark chapter 6, you'll find out all these people are on the grassy hillside. And we find out that Jesus had compassion on them and he healed the sick. And he taught them many things and the day was getting late. So that kind of puts some more information, overlays it with some more of the narrative. All right? So he's teaching, he's healing. All of these people are following him to see what he's going to do next. Verse 3, so Jesus went up on the mountainside and he sat down there with his disciples. Now the Jewish feast of the Passover was near and the crowd was larger than normal. So keep in mind, for, for the last couple thousand years, the nation of Israel has celebrated the feast of Passover. The feast of Passover, you will remember, when Israel was in captivity for 400 years in Egypt and God was delivering them at, by the hand of Moses. Uh, Moses said, listen, you're going to have to, Pharaoh, you're going to have to let these people go or there's going to be a death angel come through town and he's going he's to kill the firstborn of everything. 
And, and so Moses then told the nation, he said, you'll take a, an animal and sacrifice it, and you'll take the blood and take a hyssop or a, a straw brush, and you'll paint your doorpost with the blood. And then you'll go inside and you'll cook this sacrificial animal and you'll consume it because you're getting ready to leave. And the mark of the blood on your doorpost will be a sign to the death angel not to come in there and take the firstborn. And that was the Passover uh, experience. Now, because the death angel passed over. So now, years later, man, they're celebrating this feast all the time. I mean, they're, they're, so they come to Jerusalem, man. Everybody, it's like they have to make a journey. They are going to be here for the celebrations. There's a lot of people. So they all come to town, and they, they've heard the stories about this new guy in town named Jesus. Now, Jesus has not been long in his ministry. Jesus is in his early 30s. He lived a perfect life. There was some, some chatter about that. But now his ministry is official. He's been baptized. He's gone to the mountain of temptation. And he's performing all these miracles. So that leads us to where we are. It's almost like Jesus is like, man, boys, y'all did good. You've been out on the mission field, man. You're telling people the story. You've seen miracles at your own fingertips. Is that not amazing? This is an amazing journey. We're on together. So let's just go up on the hillside, just some, some guy time. You know, we'll you know, have a weenie roast, maybe some s'mores, sing kumbaya, you know, just, uh, just us together. No, it does not work that way with Jesus. Jesus, when Jesus goes someplace, masses follow him because Jesus is a miracle man. And everybody wants to see a miracle. But often there's people who are only in it for a miracle. They don't want what Jesus asks of them. They don't want the person, uh, they don't want to become the person Jesus wants them to become. They're just at it from a, a perspective of a spectator. I just want to watch. I just want to see it. So that's what we're going to see today. So that leads us to our passage that we're going to look at, the title of the message, on the back of your worship guide. I want you to take notes. It's a message that will help you. Uh, the title of it is A Picnic to Remember. A Picnic to Remember. Now, right above the word picnic, I want you to write this word, a provision. Just write provision above picnic. It is a provision to remember. Now, point number one is the setup of Jesus. I've never seen this before. I've never preached this before, so I'm excited about it because I got to preach it all week in my mind, all right? Got to preach it in the early service. So here's point number one, the setup of Jesus. Listen to what it says in verse 5. Then Jesus, when he looked up and saw that a large crowd was coming to him, he said to Philip, where can we buy bread so that these people may eat? Now Jesus said this to test him, for he knew what he was going to do. He did this to test him. This is the test, the setup of Jesus. Now if we look over in Matthew chapter 14, we're going to fill in the blanks a little bit to see the rest of the story of what's happening here. In Matthew 14, beginning in verse 13, it says, Jesus saw the large crowd coming. And it says he had compassion on them and he healed their sickness. It also says that he began to teach doctrine a lot. So much healing and so much teaching that the word says the sun was soon setting. The day was almost over. So here we go. You think your preacher preaches a long time. Jesus has preached a mini sermon, all in one, a mini series, all in one afternoon. So they're together and he's healing and he's teaching doctrine. He teaches and he teaches and he teaches. And now there's all of these masses there with him to see 
what he will do next. And so when you read the narrative, it's almost like now, uh, when you read the other accounts, the disciples come to Jesus to, to, to help him know something that maybe he doesn't know, which is not true because he knows everything and, and because he's God. But they come to Jesus and they say, hey, hey, Jesus, uh, it's kind of getting late. The day's almost over. Now, don't get me wrong. You're teaching. It's off the charts. <laughs> I mean, you're killing it. You've been healing people. You're teaching stuff, stuff we've never heard. It's amazing. You're, you're teaching. And, and, and you could go on forever. Me and the boys talked about it. You know, we never get tired of listening to you preach. I mean, because you are awesome. Okay? But the other people, it's getting late, and, and they're getting kind of hungry. You know, now, now not us. We, we live on the bread of life. You. We don't need to eat. But these other people, they're getting kind of hungry. It's getting dark. And... You've kind of led us out here into the middle of Nowhereville, okay? So uh, we might want to let them go get something to eat. That's what it says in the accounts in the other Gospels. Jesus' reply is, is really cool. Jesus says, I don't think we need to send them away. You feed them. <laughs> you can imagine being the disciple. Uh, yeah, or that. Yeah, we, yeah, yeah, we could do that. Yeah, we could we just feed them. But that's a good idea. Jesus would, would just feed them, okay? We're nowhere. It's dark. Aubrey's is not going to take 15,000 people at 7.30. Okay? You say 15,000. I thought it was 5,000. No. It's 5,000 men. They counted men to represent families. Most people believe 15 to 20,000 people are sitting on a grassy hillside all day, letting Jesus heal, listening to Jesus teach, and now it's getting late in the day. They're getting hungry, and Jesus says, yeah, give them something to eat. Yeah, okay. And so this is the test. This is the setup of Jesus. Now, I want you to know something. Sometimes in our life, and sometimes maybe now in your life, you feel like maybe you have landed in this desolate, separated, uncomfortable, unknowing place, and you really don't know what's next. We've all probably been in that place. I certainly have. Um, but we land in this place, we just don't know the answers to the questions. Sometimes, in fact, all times, God allows things to happen because he's sovereign. Sometimes he even permits that which he hates to accomplish that which he loves. And he tests us. It's a test. He puts us in a place where we don't know the answers, but right here in this passage, there is a beautiful little verse, and a part of a verse in verse 6, and it says, Jesus knew what he was going to do. Isn't that good news? Listen to me. No matter where you're at, Jesus knows what he's going to do. There is never a moment in all of eternity past or future, when Jesus doesn't know what he's going to do. I just, when I read that, it just blew my mind. Man. Jesus knows what he's going to do. Always. I'm 57 years old. I still like knowing he knows what tomorrow is. He knows what he's going to do tomorrow. If I'll just align myself best I can with his desire for my life, then he knows what he's going to do, and he knows what he's going to do with me. Look at your neighbor and say, it's okay. Tell them Jesus knows what he's going to do. Hmm. Now, I got to tell you, uh, it's, it's, it was a good week for me to get this message. If I didn't preach another point, I am, so don't get your hopes up. But if I didn't, this point was enough for me. Let me tell you why. My mom, you know, fell and broke her hip, uh, probably know, while I was in Africa. 
I have three brothers, and so we've been having to look after him. My dad is in his late stages of Alzheimer's, okay? And uh, so we have to have somebody with him during the day, and we take turns uh, looking after them at night. And so I, I, I'm going to be very blatantly uh, transparent with you. So last night, or yesterday afternoon, my mom said, so how long are you staying here? And I said, uh, I'll be here until about 9 o'clock when Kevin, my younger brother, drives up from Chattanooga. I'll leave and go preach, and I'll come back tomorrow about 1 o'clock. She said, okay. She said, well, that means uh, you'll be the one that has to give your dad a shower. Okay. Okay. Yeah, didn't see that one coming right there kind of snuck that in so I said okay and so <laughs> that place you know where you wonder what's next I was in that place so I gave my dad who's uh, almost 81 years old gave him a shower okay now listen Jesus knew what he's doing now here's here's what here's what happened I, I didn't even tell Kendra this because this happened last night I gave my dad a shower and uh, he was fine I got him out and had a towel wrapped up in a towel and we were trying to get his clothes on his pajamas or whatever and, and his his legs were still wet so you know when your legs are wet the clothes stick to your leg so it was you know it was not working <laughs> so I said hey dad your legs are still wet and so I got a towel and the Lord knew Jesus knew what he was doing I was on the floor on my knees and I was drying his legs and his feet and Jesus said that's what it feels like that's what it feels like when you're a servant to those you love okay Jesus knew what he's doing I didn't know that going into the equation if you if it would have been a multiple choice I would have chosen another letter okay without my name okay but Jesus used it now listen no matter where you're at when you think you when you don't have the answer and you wonder what's next Jesus knows what he's going to do and that is really good news number two the solution of man you see anytime there's a problem we, we want to come up with answers. Now, women do this, but men are really bad about it. It's in our DNA. We're problem solvers. We're fixers. And, 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 and we get married, and, and we think the rest of our life, our wife, every time she says something, we're, she's wanting us to fix it. That's a lie. Let me just tell you, let me enlighten you. Just because she says something that sounds like a problem, she does not necessarily want you to fix it. Now, the problem is determining which... The problem is determining which ones you're supposed to fix and which ones you're supposed to listen to, and it requires the Holy Spirit to discern that because they ain't going to tell you the answer to the question, okay? Now, we don't have that problem in our house anymore because uh, today, in fact, Kendra and I have been married 35 years. And on record, I'll say it to TV, I love my wife. She's a rock star, all right? I love you, babe. And... I think we need a, like a, a special parking spot at the front line at Walmart for 35 years. I know that seemed not, it hasn't seemed very long for me, but I know it seemed like an eternity for you. Uh, but I, it took me a long time to learn that she doesn't necessarily want me to fix stuff. She just wants me to hear stuff. And sometimes as a guy, we want to fix it. It'd be easier just to beat on it with a hammer or something than to just listen to it. Okay. You men did good. I thought, amen. I thought some, some idiot man's going to say, amen. You know, don't do that, okay? And, and so, so, so here's what happens in this story. <clears throat> a, a situation is presented where there's 15,000 hungry people. The sun's going down. And Jesus says, yeah, you guys feed them. And so in verse uh, uh, 7 of John chapter 6, Philip replied, 
Uh, 200 silver coins worth of bread would not be enough for them, for each one to get a little. And one of Jesus' disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, um, well, here's a boy who has five barley loaves and two fish. If, if you look in Matthew chapter 14, verse 38, Jesus has just told the disciples, see if there's any food around. Okay, now Philip is from this area. All right. So the reason Jesus went to Philip is this was his homeland. He would know he's the source for the resource. All right. So so Philip's already thinking, okay, a couple hundred denarii, we could get just, you know, we could have like communion, you know, a little wafer. All right. He's trying to plan this out. Man's solution. And the first one, the first solution that we usually have when God is trying to uh, meet a need is we want to buy it. We want to personally take care of it with our own finances. It's very natural for us to want to do that. The second solution is the redistribution of wealth. Okay, Andrew is a, a, a very neat character in the group of disciples. You don't hear of him preaching these great messages or performing great miracles or doing supernatural things that much. But what you do see Andrew do is bring people to Jesus. So earlier in the, in the story, when Jesus is appointing his disciples, Andrew brought his brother, Peter, to Jesus. I, I just think this is kind of cool. It's like Andrew sees Jesus and he's like, uh, okay, this, this, this guy seems like the real deal. And uh, I got a brother, and man, he's a rat. And uh, if he's really God, <laughs> it's going to take him to fix my brother. And so he, and, and you know how it's true, Peter, man, he was a scoundrel. I mean, he was messed up, but God used him in a powerful way. So Andrew brings Peter to Jesus and watches Jesus begin to do his wonder-working power in this guy's, this fisherman's life. And so now the opportunity comes. There's another provision, a provision that needs to be, a, a need that needs to be met, a provision that needs to surface. And he looks around and he goes, yeah, I'm good at bringing people. That's about all I got. I'm, I got a little boy here. I got this little boy here, and he's got his leftover combo from Captain D's. He's got five biscuits and two fish. And so I brought him to the story, if you can do anything with it. And so we'll just redistribute the, the wealth. Man is always trying to get, come up with a plan. Now, I want you to look at your neighbor and say this. God's plan is always better. Now, you know you can come up with some good plans. Anybody in here a good planner? Okay. <laughs> Nobody? Nobody in the whole place. Okay. Dan, okay, Carolyn, okay, Kendra, okay, there, Stephanie, there you go, all right. Kendra is a, a better planner than I am. If you don't believe me, ask her. She'll tell you. And, and, and that whole test, point number one, the test, that G, she puts me to the test. Here's what the test looks like in our house. Hey, Joel, uh, I was thinking about this. What do you think? And 35 years, I still I play, the, I play dumb real easy. I go wandering into the darkness like that, and I suggest something just so you can say, Seriously? She can say, what? No, we can't do that. Okay. Yeah. So I don't know why I go in there. So I started after 35 years. I started doing this. She says, she says, hey, Joel, I was thinking about doing this. What do you think? I said, it's a good question. What do you think? <laughs> and then whatever she says, you know what I say? Huh, I like it. I like your idea. Okay? And so, and so what happens here is, 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 uh, is Andrew and Philip, they have a plan. But it's a terrible plan because it's not God's plan. And I want to encourage you right here, no matter where, in your, where you are in your journey and your life, Jesus knows what he's going to do. Jesus has a plan. 
surrender your plan to his plan because his plan is a better plan. Number three is the sacrifice of a boy. I love this part. This is the part that we know we hear about when we're in uh, uh, when we're children in Bible school or in Sunday school. We hear this part: the sacrifice of a boy. So Andrew says, "I got this little boy, and he has five barley loaves and two fish. But what good are these for so many people?" All right, let's just get in the story a little bit. Let's just kind of get into the narrative. All right. Here's 15, 20,000 people spread out on a grassy hillside. Here's Jesus, Savior of the world, the Messiah, God incarnate in the flesh. Here's 12 disciples, and here's this kid with a lunch. And Andrew says, I got this guy, okay, and I got his lunch, but I don't know, what is this among so many people? And if I was that little boy, you know what I would think? I would be thinking, uh, my mama did not pack that for all these, quote, people. She packed that for me. So if you're finished with it, making fun of my small lunch, I'll take it. I'm hungry. I'll eat it. But he doesn't do that. The little boy's just it's silent. There's no record of him saying anything. He is willing to sacrifice all that he has for Jesus to do something with. Now, I want you to notice something. There's 15 or 20,000 people scattered all over the hillside watching from a distance. There's really only a few people that know what's happening before their eyes. The disciples, Jesus, and now this little boy. And I want you to know that there's a whole lot of the people in this world who, who embrace Christianity, who claim Christianity, but they only want to watch Christianity at a distance. They want to see the show of it. They want to experience the performance of it. But they only want it as a, at a distance. They don't, want, they don't want the ringside, up close and personal view of all that God wants to do. Now what's in his lunch? It's important to know. Because when we read it, we're like, okay, fish, it really doesn't keep. You know, some of you ladies, you know. Does anybody else in here stick everything in the refrigerator so it won't spoil? My wife sticks everything of 35 years in the refrigerator. So we stay healthy, okay? When I was growing up, you'd fry chicken, you'd set it on the table, eat it for lunch, come back tonight after church, still there. Pick it up, eat it. Nobody died. <laughs> Anybody remember that? Old people remember that. Now, man, we are germaphobes, okay? We put everything in the refrigerator. So there's people, ah, whole story, you know, he's carrying fish. Let me explain what he had. He had five barley loaves. Barley is a poor person's grain a poor person's bread barley is coarse it, it, it poor people would eat it because they could afford it uh people who had some uh, uh uh wealth would feed it to their animals and so he has five poor boy biscuits and he has two fish now in in that region there's a fish that typically is seven to nine inches long it's, it's kind of skinny and there's they they, they swim in uh, schools by the millions and they would catch these fish and they would pickle these fish with salt and other things and it would preserve it so it's like sardines I'm now let me hear so here's what's funny yeah, ladies I see your face your lip just snarled up over your eyes I mean the whole thing I am so glad this story's taken place 2,000 years ago because if this little boy shows up with a pair of sardines and four hard biscuits at our 15,000-person picnic and Jesus says, I got lunch, everybody, this is what we're going to hear. Well, my daughter, she's got a stomach problem and she's allergic to barley. 
You think I could get a wheat roll from O'Charlie's? You know? Well, sardines, wow, I, oh, I don't eat sardines. They're nasty. Can I get like a grilled chicken? Maybe some mashed potatoes. You know what I'm saying? All right. We have got come so far. Excuse me. We have digressed so far. Um, we live in a world where this miracle doesn't even work today. It wouldn't work. But it works here because this little boy gives what he has. And, and we just live in a different time. Now, here's what I want you to know. Uh, I believe this little boy understood something that even the disciples didn't understand. Why do I think that? It, because Philip is trying to come up with a plan to buy everybody a little something. Uh, Andrew is trying to uh, redistribute the wealth. Let's just say this is what we've got. How can we make this work? And I believe this little boy had something that's critically important in our walk, in our journey with Jesus. And it is this, childlike faith. I believe this little boy felt like honored. Uh, Jesus wants my lunch? <laughs> okay. Okay. He can have my lunch. Yeah, I want to see what he's going to do with my lunch. The fact that Jesus wants my lunch kind of moves me. You see, he knew that Jesus could and would do something greater than he could even expect. See, children have a faith that's required and mandated for us to even experience the kingdom of God. Jesus said, unless you have the faith of a little child, you shall not experience the kingdom of heaven. That's pretty heavy stuff. My grandson, Judson, and soon, Juliana's starting to talk, so I'll be sharing her stories. I was in Africa. I don't know if I shared this last week or not, but I was in Africa. And Caitlin said, Judson said, Mommy, we need to pray. Pray. And so they were eating dinner. And she said, you want to pray? Yeah, I'll pray. He said, God, I pray for Popo. He's in an airplane flying to Jesus. And I pray I will make good choices so I don't get a pankin'. That's childlike faith right there. You, you see, here, here he is. He's four years old. And he's praying what I believe, what I'm going to call the great commandment prayer. Which is what? Love God with all you have. Want to be obedient to his word and love others like yourself. He's praying for his papa. He loves people around him. He's praying that he'll be obedient. Okay? <laughs> he don't want spanking. But okay. It's a, it's a result. Alright? So, so here's the thing. Childlike faith. Sometimes we need to get back to being children. You know, the great adventure of life when things are much bigger and things are more exciting, the wow of life. And then we grow up and it just becomes a little mundane. Okay? Kendra and I sometimes say, what are we going to start doing at night? You know, because we're turning into old people. You know, that like watch TV and read a book. Okay? And we need to be like chasing a rabbit or something. I don't know what that is. You know, we're trying to figure that out. Any of y'all got any suggestions? Okay, tell her and she'll decide if it's a good idea. And so, so, so here's a little boy who has childlike faith that simply says, this, this is all I got, but if Jesus wants it, he can have it. I want you to ask your neighbor this question. What's in your basket? What is that thing that's in your basket that you may not have been willing yet to surrender <laughs> into the hands of the one who gave you the basket. You see, here's what this little boy was doing. He may not have worded it this way, but childlike faith looks like this. Um, 
Jesus is the creator of everything. He created me. He created this basket that me is holding. He created the five loaves and the two fish that are in the basket. And if it were not for him, I would have no fish, no barley, no basket, no me. So here. You see, that's, that's how we extrapolate childlike faith. Where we understand it's all his anyway. And who are we to white knuckle hang on to what's already his? And so when we let go of what seems like other people may say, that's insignificant. There's not enough there to matter. And when we say, yeah, but it's what he gave me, and we give that over to him, he can do powerfully important, powerfully miraculous things with what little we give when we simply give him our basket. Number four, the structure of a miracle now. The structure of a miracle. It says in verse 10, Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was a lot of grass in that place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. And then their families would have been with them, 15, 20,000 people. In Mark 6, verse 40, it says, so they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. In Luke 9, 14 and 15, it says, Jesus told his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50. And the disciples did so, and everyone sat down. If we read this, we read right over something that's really incredible. Here's 15,000, 20,000 people hanging out on a hillside watching Jesus, listening to Jesus teach all day long. And now the, one of the disciples or some of the disciples just spread the word, hey, everybody, sit down. And they all sat down. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Have you ever dealt with a group of people? It's like herding cats. They don't sit down. They don't do what you tell them to do because they got a better idea. They have a new thing. But in this case, Jesus said, tell them to sit down. And they sat down in groups of 50 to 100. Now, sometimes... Miracles get a little confusing because if you turn on television, miracles are, you know, uh, everybody's jumping around and hollering and carrying on, you know, and slaying people out and catching people and dragging them to the side. And, you know, it's, it's a whole different environment, you know, in miracles. We got to work up a miracle. A lot of television, uh, TV evangelists, they work up miracles. When you read the Gospels, it doesn't look like that. You don't have to work one up. You just tell everybody, hey, everybody, sit down. Just get in groups of 50 or 100. I'm getting ready to do an amazing miracle right here. It doesn't take a working up when God does a miracle. He simply says, everybody have a seat in groups of 50 to 100. Now, now here's what's interesting about that. Imagine now for a second, all of these people sitting on a hillside wondering what Jesus is going to do next. <laughs> Everybody's wondering except Jesus. Why? Remember what I said? Because Jesus knows what he's going to do. So Jesus knows what he's getting ready to do. He wants them to be seated. And now there's a, a, some disciples up close and this little boy. And Jesus is getting ready to do something that nobody ever saw coming or nobody ever understood how this could happen. And I got to thinking, why would people be content at a distance experiencing the handiwork of Jesus? I don't get that. And yet the world's full of that. That, yeah, I'm, I'm a Christian at a distance, okay? I, I don't know who wants that. And I think about this little boy that showed up with a lunch, and he's ringside to one of the most amazing miracles that Jesus ever did. And, and I, I was thinking about this. Nobody wants to sit at a distance. I, one of the first football games at Neyland Stadium I ever went to was with my brother. I was in high school. 
And somebody gave us these tickets. <clears throat> they said, I got free tickets. And they're really good tickets. Okay? We go and we hiked right up to the top of the stadium. It was before the stadium was even complete. It was a great, you know why, you know why it was a great seat? Because you could actually see the game in life way down there. And if the game was terrible, you could just look over and look out in the parking lot at all the drunk people. So you had a show either way. That's the only reason that was a good ticket. It was on the last row, nosebleed section. I mean, it, when I was a kid, I had electric football. Electric football, you had these little plastic players. You'd turn the electricity on it. The, the board would vibrate. And these little guys, anybody remember that? Yeah, that was serious right then. All right, that was real deal. Okay, that's what it looked like. All right? Nobody would want those seats. Not if there's other seats available. I want you to know something today. Jesus is inviting you and me and us to be ringside in his activity. He doesn't want us to be spectators at a distance. He wants to, us to be in the storyline. He wants us to be the little boy with nothing in his hand, willing to say, my nothing is everything to you. And being willing just to turn it over. Now, look at your neighbor and ask him, are you ringside or nosebleed? Number five is what I call the secret sauce. You know the secret sauce. You're going to have a picnic, all right? Now, now everybody look right here for a second, okay? If you're going to have a picnic and, and you're going to take something to the picnic, you're going to take that thing, if you're ladies especially, guys do it too, but ladies, you're going to take that thing that the last time you went to a picnic, everybody just went on and on about your covered dish. You know what I'm saying? Hey, 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 who made the macaroni and cheese? You know? And... And, and, and then somebody says, hey, I think they're talking about your macaroni and cheese. And, and, and Kendra would be like, are they talking about mine? What color is the bowl? <laughs> it's blue and it's empty. <laughs> that would be my macaroni and cheese. I made, I made that macaroni and cheese. It's a little creation I put together. It's no big deal. You love it? Yeah, well, just a little something I whipped up. Okay. All right. You, and, and so the next picnic, I don't have to say, Kendra, what you taking to the covered dish? You know what she's taking? She already knows. She's been looking forward to the next picnic since the last picnic that they ate all of her macaroni and cheese. All right? Because it's a secret sauce. See, there's something special that made that special for the environment. It's no different here. This miracle has what I call the secret sauce. Something that makes this moment different from other moments. Something that puts a punctuation mark on what's getting ready to happen. And the secret sauce we have access to today. Listen to what it says in verse 11. Then Jesus took the loaves and when he had given thanks. When you read the other gospel accounts, it says he took the bread, he took the fish, he held it up to God, and he said, thank you for this provision. Now, let's not read through this. Here is God incarnate, Jesus, standing among 15 or 20,000 hungry people in the late of the day with his disciples watching and this little boy who sacrificed his humble lunch. And Jesus says, thank you for this. I want you to learn something right here. We need to have the attitude of gratitude right where we are. 
We shouldn't be waiting to another level of sustenance, another level of success, another level of of resource. We should be thankful right where we are because when we're thankful, it opens up and begins, uh, it, it, it frees God to bless us because he understands we get it. We have hearts of gratitude. I said earlier about you going to mission field, man, and it just rocks your world. And it doesn't matter where you go. You can go to Honduras. You can go to Brazil. You can go to Africa. I was in Africa, and and uh, and my translator, best translator I've ever had, and his name was Philip. Philip uh, is about my height. Very nice-looking guy, and dressed really nice, and clothes were all clean and pressed, and speaks uh, uh, Swahili and uh, beautiful English, unbelievable English. Uh, he speaks uh, Turkana, he speaks uh, Ma or Masai, all these languages, and and so and he's here's why he's the best translator I've ever had. Because I get a little excited sometimes. I don't know if you noticed. And if I'm in Africa, I get really excited. Why? Because I'm in Africa. Okay? And so I, I, I was like this. I was kind of came off the pulpit. And I came down and I said, I need to tell you something. I was like this. And I looked over. And he's right beside me doing the same thing. He's saying it in, in uh, Swahili. And everything, every time I'd move my hand, he'd move his hand. I'd, and now it's like I'm, I'm start messing with him like you do this. You know, I was, it was so cool. Now, now here's the thing. So I, I, I love the guy. He's just got a heart for Jesus. And here's what happened. We would sit down to eat, and they would ask Philip to pray. And his prayer was like, I'm, I'm sitting there thinking, huh, I, don't even, I wish I could pray like that. He's just, uh, Heavenly Father, we, I'm just so thankful. He's just, oh, he's just, just gratitude just oozed from him. And I was jealous. So we go to his village, and, and, so it, and, and I said, uh, it's Lashuda is the name of his village. And so I asked Keith and Tanya, I said, hey, I'm looking at all the, the, the Bowmans, the, the homes. They're all mud, mud homes. I said, where's Philip live? And they go, what do you mean? Where's Philip's house? Well, it's right over there with those other houses. I said, so he lives in a mud home too? <laughs> and they said, yeah. And I'm like, he's cleaner than me. He's neater than me. He's smarter than me. He prays better than I do. <laughs> when I get home, I'm building me a mud house. <laughs> but, this, but I'd be in it all by myself. <laughs> Some days, not so bad, but some days I'd rather have company. And, and so here's the thing. You, you finish up over there, they don't, they don't have what we have. They, they pay them $15 a day for labor. A day, a day, okay? And so you get ready to leave, and they come and they put a Maasai uh, uh, blank, Lashuda, I think I said that right on you, and, and they, they give you stuff. And Rachel knows this in Brazil. They don't have anything. They want to give you what they don't have. They don't care if they have to go pull a limb off and whittle you something. You know, they take and make this stuff because they have hearts of gratitude. Listen, their thankfulness is not because of what they have. Their thankfulness originates from who he is. You see, when, when you experience God, the things of this world disappear. They don't matter anymore. Material possessions just, just disappear into oblivion when you get who God is. It doesn't mean there's anything wrong with material possessions. It doesn't. It just means when the priority is wrong, it's a problem. 
And so we have to develop this secret sauce mentality of gratitude for all that God has given us. In 1 Thessalonians 5.18 it says, Give thanks in all circumstances for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Colossians 3.17 says, And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Uh, many decisions in this life are made uh, and mistakes are made simply because we have forgotten to be thankful for where God has us in the moment. So I want you to tell your neighbor, you should be more thankful. Just tell them. And Carol, you can turn your back and say it to Dan because he needs a double dose. <laughs> Amen. Yeah. We should all be more thankful. If you agree that we're probably not as thankful to God as we should be, say amen. amen. If you agree that, that uh, developing an attitude of gratitude is not rocket science, say amen. amen. Well then, if you believe we should be more grateful, say amen. amen. Number six. So now we have the setup of Jesus, the solution of man, the sacrifice of a boy, the structure of a miracle, and the secret sauce, number six. We have the supply that satisfies. Now listen to what happens now. It says, he now distributed the bread to those who were seated, and he then did the same with the fish as much as they wanted. Uh, Matthew 14, 19 and 20 says, then he gave them to the disciples after he blessed it and the disciples gave them to the people and they all ate and were satisfied when we have an attitude of gratitude a heart of thankfulness we will find ourselves satisfied we won't always be longing for that other thing that will fulfill us when we become thankful for that which God has already placed in our basket, and in our life. And so, once again, we're in Africa. The roads are terrible. It's been raining, washed out. And we're driving up this road, and a truck, uh, like 18-wheelers, turned over. And there's five guys climbing around trying to figure out what to do next. And all their, their load has, washed, has fallen out the side of the truck. And we couldn't help them, so we drove on. And we, we were in this village, and... We ate in this village. And when you go on the mission field, they want to feed you stuff. Stuff that you wouldn't normally eat. And it's a little bit offensive not to eat. But it's also a little bit scary to eat. And so we were in a dirt hut, a home. And they made goat and potatoes and these little tortilla things. I'm about a tortilla. I'm about a potato. I'm allergic to goat. <laughs> I don't know that, but I'm guessing I would have an allergic reaction where I would throw up. So I didn't eat the goat, okay? But I was thankful for the potato and the bread. And I was, I was very, I was, I, was, I tried to be as, you know, as gracious as possible. So, you know, I'm vegetarian. <laughs> no, I didn't say that. I thought it, but that would be a lie. I can't say that, Okay. So, so I ate the potatoes and I ate the tortilla things and I passed on the goat and, and, they, and some of the other guys, they, did, they tore up the goat and so everybody's happy. And so we ate and we, what we didn't realize was we had some food in the truck and we were on the way back and 
that truck that turned over was still there six hours later, seven hours later. And the truck was still turned over, and these guys were still there. They didn't have anything to eat. And one of the guys was with us said, hey, we've got this box right here. And we opened up the box, and here's these meals. And we just chunked them out the window. You know, here, here, here. And, man, you, they tore into those boxes. I mean, they were hungry. Now, here's the thing. We were, we were thankful for what we had in this moment. And on the way back, I believe, because we were thankful in that moment, a provision is now available in this moment. And often we never get to that place because we're not even thankful where we are. So I want you to ask your neighbor this one. Will you ever be satisfied? I said that in the early service and this couple busted out laughing. And I looked over and I said, which one of you is guilty? They said, both of us. We live in, a, we live in America. Home of the American nightmare. I mean dream. You know, back in the day, one day we'll all have a car in the driveway and we'll all have a home we can call our own. You spin that forward about 80 years and now we have bigger homes with more stuff in them and multiple cars sitting in the driveway and often still not satisfied. You know it's true. And, and, and the more we get, the, more, the bigger television we get, it's just a bigger advertisement for something else we need, you know? And, and that's the world we live in. And, and, and we have to get to a place where we will be satisfied. And I'm telling you, when we turn our eyes on Jesus and we get who he is, the things of this world will start to disappear. Lastly, the surplus to go. The surplus to go. Verse 12 says, When they were all satisfied, Jesus said to his disciples, Gather up the broken pieces that are left over so that nothing is wasted. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with broken pieces from the five barley loaves left over by the people who had eaten. The surplus to go. When, when we allow, with hearts of gratitude, God to have what he has placed in our basket, there will always be enough to satisfy, listen, and a surplus to go. They got doggy bags. Now, why is there 12 baskets? I don't know. People say, well, 12 disciples, they all got a basket. Well, that's fine, but they skipped the number one player in that story short of Jesus, and that's his little boy. I would have given all 12 baskets to that little boy. He said, man, you take this home and have another party in your neighborhood, okay? We don't know why 12 baskets, but here's, what's, here's what hit me in the face. He said, let's gather up the broken pieces that are left over so that nothing is wasted. Wow. We live in a wasteful culture. You know it? I didn't see this one coming. I just, I, this hit me. I was thinking, man, we, we sure do waste a lot of stuff. We leave lights on. Eh, it's just going to be a few cents, you know, on the electric bill. We, we do what I did this morning, brush our teeth. I know you're surprised I brush my teeth, but let me finish the story. I brush my teeth, and, and the water's still running in the sink. Anybody leave the water running in the sink? Shh, sinners. <laughs> this morning, 
This morning, I was brushing my teeth, and the water's running, and I thought about this, wasteful, and I went, turn it off real quick, you know. Turn it back on, turn it off, you know. And I was thinking, man, how much we waste. We get in our cars, and we drive, and we drive, and we drive places we don't even need to be, and, we're, and then we go fit, put some more fuel in it, you know. We, we cook too much. We order too much at the restaurant. I, I, I leave food on my plate sometimes enough to feed a small family, okay. And I eat a lot. It's just I order a lot. Okay, anybody in here wasteful? Is it just your pastor? Yeah, we are. We're wasteful people. And Jesus said, gather it up. Why? Because all that God ever does, he wants us to be stewards with it. He wants us to be stewards with the first fruits. Hmm, I didn't see this. He wants us to be stewards with the last fruits. He wants us to be good stewards of it from beginning to the end of it. That's a challenge in our culture. That's hard to do. There will always be more than enough. There will always be more than enough. When we give God what's in our basket, and when we have an attitude of gratitude for what we have. Finish up in 14 and 15. Now when the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus performed, they began to say to one another, this is certainly the prophet who is to come into the world. Then Jesus, because he knew they were going to come and seize him by force to make him king, withdrew again up the mountainside alone. See, they're just following Jesus for what they can get out of Jesus and to see what next miracle he'll perform before them. And Jesus is not about that. Jesus will perform miracles in our life, but he's not about miracles. Jesus is about inviting us to the place of that little boy where we're just, where we're just amazed that he would choose to use what we have and we're faithful in just surrendering it into his possession to do something greater uh, than anything we would ever do with it. That's what Jesus is after. And so I was thinking, what does this look like? It can be personal, but I want to tell you what it looks like on a bigger scheme. I want to tell you what it looks like in the life of a church. About five and a half years ago, we launched this church at Sturkey Hills, relaunched it as a revitalization, and, and uh, some of you were here. Most of you were not. About 50 of you probably were here, and 50 more of us came from second, and, 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 it, and we relaunched it. And, and the budget for 2014 was about 75, or 13 was about $75,000. And now we run about 425 in attendance average. And our offering this year will probably be about 1.3 million, something like that. And, and that's, that's pretty amazing. And, and so shortly after we were here, God gave us a vision to, that he was going to send more people. And if he's going to send more people, we had to provide a way for people to get in and out and for people to park and for people to, uh, to, to join, to, to come together and for some place to put babies and children. And so we had a team together and we started met, meeting with the architect and drew a building. And, and in March, we'll probably start doing the groundwork for our new building. And in April, we'll have Easter in a tent. Not in a mud pit like we did last year, but on gravels on our new building side. And then after Easter, maybe in May, we'll start building a building. And probably the grand opening will probably be Easter of 2021. Amen. 
Amen. Amen. Now, we didn't see that coming. We didn't see the provision for it. That when we started talking about building a building, there were naysayers who said, yeah, well, you're a little premature on talking about a building. Yeah, yeah, you just need to be quiet. Okay? Because we got to stay ahead of the curve because God's going to do something. In, in this story, <laughs> Jesus knew what he was going to do. Powerful truth. Jesus invited other people to be a part of it. Jesus used the least of these in the most important, significant way in the whole story. And because of their obedience and their willingness to engage with Jesus, the people saw one of the greatest miracles Jesus ever did. And I'm here to tell you today that Jesus has not changed he is the same today, yesterday, and forever. And he's doing great things in the life of our church as a whole. He's doing great things in the life of some of the people in our church. And he's inviting the rest of us to that ringside seat so he can let you experience the greatness of what he's doing. And if you'll bow your heads and close your eyes, that's the invitation. The invitation is this. Would you move from the nosebleed section of spectator Christianity to that up-close and personal childlike faith experience? You will not be disappointed when you do that. But I want you to know this. There may be those in here right now that will never experience it because of this one simple reality. You are not a child of God. You have never received Jesus for salvation. You maybe have heard about it. You maybe have said a prayer. You maybe know the, spec uh, the specifications and the details of salvation. But you've never yielded and surrendered your life to Jesus. If that's you today, I want you to know this could be your day of salvation. It's that moment in time when the Holy Spirit reaches down and convicts your heart and says, I want to save you because you need to be saved. And in that moment, what do we do with that? We give him our basket called life. And we say it's not much, but I believe you love me and I believe you can use my brokenness I believe you can make something great out of it. So I surrender all of me to all of Jesus. Come into my life and forgive my sin. Help me live different from this day forward. Seal me with your Holy Spirit. Call me your child forever. And I will call you my father forever. Help me live for you from this day forward in Jesus' name. And then there's others in here. You are saved. You've given him your life. But he's inviting you to a closer place. He's inviting you to a place where you surrender your basket, whatever that looks like, and you just turn it over to him and let him use it and use you. Because he wants to write you into his amazing.
amazing story. Father, we thank you for this story. We thank you for Jesus, the reason for the story. We thank you for those disciples which look like us. We thank you for those people who are just watching at a distance. It looks like the part we play too often. But God, I thank you for that little boy who was willing to bring his humble little basket into your circle and allow you to do something great with it. Help us play the part of that little boy. Having childlike faith, giving up all that, that you have given us, allowing you to do something great with it. And we'll give you the praise and the glory forever. In Jesus' name.